Thanks, Josh. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God. <laughs> uh, good morning. Uh, my name's Dan. If we haven't met before, I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And I uh, just thought we'd start with uh, a little bit of a game. So I've got three movies here, or three quotes rather, and I want to see if you can figure out which movie they're from. So here's the first one. I'll give my best impression. Bond. James Bond. Hopefully that's all right. Now, starting easy, obviously, uh, and it doesn't matter which film in the series uh, you identify for this, they're all pretty much the same. But uh, he first, 007, first says these words in a film called Dr. No, back in the 1950s. So hopefully you got something like James Bond. Uh, number two, show me the money. You know where that's from. It's from a classic of the 90s called Jerry Maguire. And now our third one, our final one, that just is one word. It's the opening word of the film. Rosebud. Do you know where that's from? Saw a couple of nods here on the live stream. <laughs> Citizen Kane, a masterpiece of black and white cinema. Now, uh, hopefully you've got a couple of those. Uh, but these three films have something in common. What they have in common is that I haven't seen them. <laughs> I'm an English teacher. I should know these things, but I, I haven't. Well, I used to be an English teacher, rather. Uh, but I haven't seen these films. They're famous. They're very quotable. But all I can really tell you about them is a famous quote or a famous scene. Uh, maybe you're the same. And I think that uh, many of us, for many of us, rather, uh, it might be similar when it comes to the biblical account of Gideon. Maybe we know the famous scene, the bit that Josh just read out for us, where uh, you know God raises up Gideon as a judge, uh, sends him out with just a, a tiny group of 300 blokes, and they manage to conquer the mighty Midianite army just with these 300 because God gives them strength. And uh, many of us know the story, and, and what do we learn from it? Well, maybe something like God can do a lot with a little or be faithful to God, and He may well help you through the, the situation that you're facing. And, you know, those are, those are true things. But much like with the famous movies from which we might only know a quote or a scene, uh, the story of Gideon, this true story, is actually so much more. It's more than just one battle, more than just one victory, more than just one pithy sort of lesson. Actually, this is a story about the complexity of people. Because you see, Gideon, sure, is a, a mighty hero in the battle, but he's also very weak. On the one hand, in the full story, he's actually very fearful and doubting. And then, at another point in the story, on the other hand, he's rather arrogant and prideful and self-exalting. See, he's a complex and sinful person, and if we're honest, just like you and me. But this story is also more than about people. It's about God. How does God relate to people who are fearful, doubting, arrogant, prideful? People like Gideon, people like you and me. Today we're going to answer that question as we see the full story of Gideon. A story of fear and weakness and pride 
ultimately a story about the God who reveals himself through all of it. Let's pray as we jump in. Yes, dear Lord, we pray that through this true account of history, this this story that you've given us, uh, you would show yourself to us this morning as the God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here's the background. Uh, Judges chapter 6, if you want to open your Bible. Uh, once again, Israel has forgotten the Lord. Right? There was Last week we saw the great victory with Deborah and Barak, uh, and Israel had rest in the land for 40 years. But over those 40 years, again, as we've seen already in Judges, they forgot the Lord. They turned instead to idols. So instead of worshipping Yahweh, the Lord, they begin worshipping Baal, they begin setting up Asherah poles, And so, just as we've already seen so far, God gives them over to their enemies because of their sin. Take a look at Judges 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and we could add, yet again. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the Midianites are worse than anyone who's come before, because they're raiders, they're plunderers. And so every time the Israelites crops for their food that they need to live, the Midianites are there to steal it. And in fact, they're so terrifying and so fearsome, so abhorrent, that the people of Israel abandon their homes and go and live in dank caves up in the mountains. Right? This is how horrible the Midianites are. And the Israelites are starving and homeless. But here's the surprising thing. It takes them seven years to cry out to the Lord, right? Seven years of of being starving and homeless, seven years of worshipping other idols before they look to God for help. And even then, there's no sign of repentance. They seem to, to have, you know, regret because of the situation that they're in, that they're kind of like, the kid who regrets, he's sorry that he got caught with his hand inside mum's purse trying to get some extra pocket money, right? But are they truly sorry? No. They just want the consequences of their sin to stop. (laughs) They have regret without repentance, you see. So their hearts haven't changed at all. And what would we say except that Israel is in a very sorry state? But God, surprisingly, yet again, has a plan for their salvation. They don't deserve it. They certainly haven't repented. And yet, God is going to save them. And this is where we meet Gideon. And we can imagine this, much like Citizen Kane or another movie, we could imagine this like a film. And so, here's the scene. It's night time. We imagine the camera descends down with an establishing shot in the middle of a field where we see two eyes poke up over the edge of a wine press. You know what a wine press is? It's like a vat where, like this giant barrel, where you'd go in and you'd stamp down grapes. It would go through a sluice and it would make wine, right? We see this, this little head pop up over the head of it and then sink back down again. The camera then hovers over the top of the wine press and we see that this young man is not making wine. Actually, what he's doing is trying to thresh wheat. 
Why is he doing this? Well, because if he tries to thresh the wheat out in the field during the day, the Midianites will come and grab it. So instead, he's in a wine press during the night, trying to make food. He's bashing the wheat on the side of the barrel, and it's not going very well. This young man is Gideon. And then suddenly, he hears a noise. His head pops up again over the top of the wine press. And then we, the audience, hear the voice of an angel of the Lord. And you can hear what he says in verse 12. He says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And what a mighty man he is, hiding in a wine press in the middle of the night. Right? And the, the irony isn't lost on Gideon. He replies, verse 13, Please, sir, if the Lord is, Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? I mean, come on. You saved our ancestors from Egypt. You saved our fathers from the other enemies. But now it looks like the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. But the irony isn't lost on him, and perhaps as we watch this story play out, we might ask, as the audience of this scene, sometimes do I feel a little bit like Gideon? You know, fearful of, of these threats surrounding me, anxious about what the future might hold, wondering if what God actually said is true, when it really doesn't look like it in everyday life. Wondering if even God is there at all. Has he abandoned me? Has he forsaken me? Maybe in this fearful young guy we see a bit of ourselves at times. But the angel goes on. In fact, look at verse 14. These aren't just the angel's words. In a very mysterious way, these are actually the words of Yahweh, of the Lord. It's the Lord himself speaking. And he says to fearful Gideon, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And again, <laughs> we look at Gideon and his situation. He doesn't seem to have a lot of might, does he? He's not the typical heroic strong man. He's actually very weak and afraid. But here's the thing. The Lord says he'll have the strength he needs because it's the Lord himself who sends him. The Lord of all creation will be with Gideon. That's how he'll have the strength to do this thing that the Lord is commanding him to do. This is very much the assurance that he needs to hear. And although it's very surprising as the scene goes on, that word assurance is probably a good word to summarize this opening act of Gideon's story. It's what we're going to see again and again. But when the Lord gives assurance, how does Gideon respond? Well, he's not only fearful, he's actually also doubting the Lord. The conversation goes back and forward, right? Gideon says, well, I can't do it. And the Lord says to him, but I'll be with you. And then Gideon says, yes, but I'm the weakest guy from the weakest tribe, from the weakest clan in all of Israel. And the Lord says, but I'll be with you. The conversation keeps going back and forward like this. Uh, the Lord assuring and Gideon doubting. In fact, uh, Gideon even asks God, look, 
give me a sign that this is true. Give me a sign that you're really speaking to me. And graciously, the Lord does. He does this miracle uh, kind of like with Moses. You might have heard some of those undertones there of doubting and fear as he talks with God. Uh, there's this, this sign with fire where he burns up this, this food in front of Gideon with this miraculous fire. And all of a sudden, doubting Gideon realizes who it is that's speaking to him. This really is the Lord. And Gideon here doesn't just fear for his circumstances, he actually fears for his life. Because this is the Lord that he's been doubting. And this is the Lord who could snuff him out in an instant. But what happens? Verse 23, take a look. The Lord reassures him yet again. He says, peace be to you. Do not fear, Gideon. You will not die. And so Gideon there builds an altar and he calls it, the Lord is peace. Now, what a beautiful thing to know the reassurance of the Lord in the midst of our fears and doubts. And notice that, you know, God doesn't wait for Gideon to overcome his fear or overcome his doubt before he gives his assurance. Actually, he just, he gives him reassurance anyway. But also notice that this reassurance is not just to give him like a warm, fuzzy feeling so he, he feels good inside. It's actually for a purpose. Remember, the Lord is commanding Gideon to do something. As the scene goes on, it's first something small. He wants Gideon to go and, and take down the idols that are in his dad's backyard, Joash's backyard. He wants him to tear down the idol of Baal and, and tear down the Asherah pole. And, you know, it's a small thing in one sense, but he has to go against his culture, against his family. It's going to take courage. And does he do it? Well, yes, sort of. <laughs> He's still afraid, so he only does it at night. And then the next morning when everyone finds out, they're all pointing fingers. He sort of sinks to the back of the crowd, hoping not to get found out. He still does it, though. And then the Lord commands him, of course, to do the big thing. To go and take on the Midianites. And in verse 34, we see that the Lord gives him everything that he needs to do it. He clothes him with the Holy Spirit. And then he with Gideon's help, uh, uh, gathers a mighty army of Israelites around him. They're all set for battle, right? <laughs> God's given him all he needs. But then the camera takes us to a small room, and again, it's nighttime. We see Gideon in this room alone, with his hands up like this. He's praying to the Lord, and we sort of have to like turn up the volume on the TV to hear what he's saying. What's he praying to the Lord? Is he praising God because this great victory is going to come? Well, no. Actually, he's asking God for yet another sign that this is true. This time, he says, he'll put a fleece, like a sheepskin, out onto the grass. And if the sheepskin, the fleece, is wet in the morning... While the grass remains dry, he says, then he'll know once for all that the Lord is with him. Now, step back from that scene for a moment and imagine that, you know, you've given someone all the assurance that God has given to Gideon at this point. 
all the words, all the time, all the patience. God even sends a miraculous sign already. What would you want to say to Gideon at this point if you were in that position? Mate, what's your problem? Why don't you get this? Why can't you just trust me? But what does God do? Take a look. He graciously gives his assurance yet again. It's almost unthinkable. Gideon is still very much in fear and doubt after all that the Lord's shown him. And yet, God again reassures him. And surely now he knows that God is with him, right? Well, he asks in verse 39, yet again. And take a look at this. The words are actually really important. He says, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. And that word test is a very significant word because Gideon, as, a, as an Israelite, would have known the words of Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where Moses said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But here he is speaking to the Lord, literally saying, I'm going to test you. Oh my goodness. He's not just afraid and doubting anymore. He's actually sinning, right? He's demanding for the God of the whole universe to give him more proof because what he's given so far isn't good enough. Think about it. He's actually putting himself in the place to judge whether God is faithful or not. That's sin. That's rebellion. And yet, uh, the irony is, some people see this scene with the fleece not as an example of sin, but actually as a model to follow. They say that this is something about how God gives guidance, right? So how do you know what God wants you to do? Well, you, you sort of lay out a fleece, right? You ask God for a sign. You ask God for confirmation. And it's not wrong to ask God to, to help us know, to help us have assurance of something. But, you know, sometimes it sounds like we're, we're asking him for a sign or a signal because he hasn't given us enough. Much like Gideon, it could be something like, God, if this is what you really, really want me to do, and I know it says to do it in your word, but if this is really what you want me to do, then oh, give me an open door so that I can walk through it. Right? Or, or something like, God, if this is the person that you really want me to be with, then give me a, a dream or a sign or a, a feeling of peace inside me or something like that. And the Lord loves to give us peace in our spirit. He does. But here sometimes that when we ask for these things, we're actually demanding proof from the Lord for something that could be clear to us from another way, whether it's from his word or applying the wisdom of scripture to our circumstance. See, the fleece isn't a model of guidance. It's actually an example of sin. It's putting the Lord to the test. And so again, what would you want to say to Gideon at this point? You know, maybe something like, look where your fear and your doubt have gotten you, mate. <laughs> You're now sinning against God. You're putting yourself above him. You're not the judge of God. And what would we want God to do at this point? Well, the Lord, just dump him. Start with someone better. But here is the love of God. He assures Gideon yet again. 
when Gideon wakes up the next morning, indeed, this time, just as he asked, the fleece is dry and the grass has remained wet from the dew of the morning. See, even when Gideon's doubt and fear lead him into sin, God still mercifully gives assurance. He's still there to say to Gideon, I am with you. I'm going to work through you for my plan of salvation. I am everything that you need. And is that something that you need to hear this morning? Do you need to hear this reassurance from God? Because, you know, let's be honest, here we are still in lockdown. And for many of us, it's been a struggle, hasn't it? Uh, We're still isolated. Perhaps some of us are, are still full of fear, full of doubt, whether it's about what the future might hold in our state, in our country, in our world, or because perhaps our spiritual walk has just gone off the rails in this time. Perhaps even a bit like Gideon, some of us are are caught in like a a habitual sin and we think, gosh, yeah, I'm I'm so distant from God. What must he want to say to me now at this point? Well, hear this. If you're in Christ, then God longs to reassure you. Jesus longs to give you assurance. And not just with a nice fuzzy feeling, but to give you the reassurance of his promises in Scripture. Like, for example, John 1.12. This is a verse that I memorized a long time ago, and it's got me through a lot. John 1.12. Yet to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Hear that promise. If you're in Christ, if you have received Jesus, if you're trusting him, believing in him for the forgiveness of your sins, then what are you? Are you abandoned by God? Are you disowned by God? No. He has given you the right to be called his child. He'll never leave you. He'll never abandon you. He has love for you as a son, a daughter, an heir of all the inheritance of his kindness to come. What about this one? Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, has that truth changed? Is that promise broken? No. God loves to reassure you, fearful, doubtful, sinful brother or sister. He loves to reassure you again and again and again. I mean, think about in a healthy marriage right? Um, say for, for me and Sky, my wife, right? Um, let's say that, that one day, whether it's today or sometime in the future, Sky comes to me and she's just feeling out of sorts, right? For whatever reason. And she wants reassurance that I love her. What am I going to do? Am I going to say something like, why are you worried about that? I told you on our wedding day, that I love you. I made all those vows. Don't you remember those? I don't need to tell you again and again. Get over it. Am I going to do something like that? (laughs) I hope not. I'm not going to do that. 
and nor is the Lord going to do that to us. Just like with me and, and my wife or in any healthy marriage, I love telling her that I love her. And I hope that I continue to tell her that I love her until our dying day. The Lord is the same. He loves to reassure us in our weakness. He has an eternity of love for you. And not because of how good you are, but rather because of how good his son Jesus was in your place. God still loves you. He's still using you as a part of his plan for salvation. He's still working for your ultimate good and for his glory. And so if you are weak, fearful, doubtful, sinful, go back to the promises of Scripture and find the beautiful reassurance of the Lord. Now, let's unpause the Gideon story. And we're going to fast forward through a bit here, the bit that Josh read for us, the famous part that many of us know. But, you know, here's just a, a little glimpse of the scenes that flash past in case you've forgotten, right? Gideon has this huge army ready to fight with him, but God says, it's too many. I want you to whittle it down. And so he gives, you know, two ways of whittling it. The first is send everyone home who's afraid and two-thirds of them leave. There's 30,000, two-thirds of them go. Uh, and then he says, still too many, uh, send home everyone who drinks from the river in a certain way. And now that almost all the rest of them go home, it's only 300 left. 1% of the original number. And why does God do this? Well, you can see it there in, in chapter 7, uh, verse uh, number 2. Uh, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my hand has saved me. Do you hear why God's doing this? So Israel wouldn't boast. They wouldn't think that they're the clever ones, they're the strong ones who have made this happen. It's God. Only God could lead an army of 300, really just a group of blokes, to take on an army of over 120,000. Only God could do that. And so then the story plays out. Gideon and his 300 go in and it's exciting battle and the enemies are all turning their swords against each other because the Lord has sent confusion. And finally, they're victorious. In fact, barely lifting a finger. There's no record of them having to kill anyone. God takes the 300 and has victory over the mighty Midianite army. And remember the point. The point is not just that God can do a lot with a little. It's actually that it's the Lord who's done this great thing. Not Israel, not Gideon. He saved them. And so they need to trust and follow him. That's the point. Which is why it's really, really curious when before the battle begins, Gideon gives the command for all the soldiers to shout something out. Take a look, chapter 7, verse 18. Maybe you heard Josh pause on it in the reading, which I thought was very good. He says, for the troops to call out, for the Lord and for Gideon. <laughs> now, does that sound right to you? <laughs> There's, there's something there that's, well, maybe it's not outright wrong, but it's just a little hint at something perhaps going wrong here. And now as we stop the fast forward and we press play on the movie, here's what we're about to see. If assurance was the theme of the first act, the theme of the second act, the final act, is arrogance. 
And so let's see the scene here. Gideon and his 300 men, having conquered the Midianites, they've you know, pursued them, chased them out, and now they're pursuing them out into the wilderness, all the scattered remains of their army. They're exhausted, they're hungry, and so what they do is they roll into a city called Sukkoth, and they go there looking for food. Right? Now, Sukkoth are sort of an ally. They would benefit from the Midianites being destroyed. But the city officials, when they see Gideon and all his troops, they say, well, no, we're not giving you a scrap of food. Oh, why not? Because you haven't conquered the Midianites yet. You've chased them around, you've killed lots of them, great. But the kings are still out there. They're not done with yet. And so we don't owe you anything until you actually beat the Midianites completely. Now, that, that's a bit mean, isn't it? <laughs> These starving, exhausted troops that have just won a battle that you didn't even fight in. That's pretty mean. But get a load of how Gideon responds to them and see if you can detect a bit of a change of character here. Take a look at Judges 8, verse 7. Well then, Gideon says to the elders and officials of Sukkoth, when the Lord has given Zebar and Zalmanah, that is, the kings of Midian, into my hand, here's what I'll do. I'm going to come back and I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Do you hear what he's saying? Hey, when this is all done, mark my words. I will have my vengeance. I'm coming back here and I'm going to whip you guys with thorns. <laughs> now, does that sound like the fearful, doubting guy from before? <laughs> Something has changed here and, and uh, in fact, Gideon comes to another place. He moves on from Sukkoth to a place called Penuel. And he finds the same problem. They don't give him any food. And so he threatens to come back there as well and tear down their tower. Something's changed here. Something's very wrong. And it gets worse. See, verse 14, Gideon finally overtakes the king's of the Midianites, and on his way back from victory, he finds a young man from that first town, Sukkoth, right? And he kidnaps him. He kidnaps the guy and takes him into an interrogation room, and then he demands, like, you know, bad cop, write down all the names of the elders and the officials of Sukkoth, every one of them, every name, write them down. And this poor guy has to, like, write down 77 names of all the different elders of this town. He's making a hit list, literally. And so once he does that, he tears back into Sukkoth, gathers all the officials and elders on his list, and true to his word, he whips them with thorns. And then he moves on from there, goes to Penuel, and again, true to his word, tears down the tower together with his troops and kills multiple people in the result. Now, what's going on here? What's changed? Because before, if you remember, Gideon seemed so timid at obeying the Lord. But now, he seems so confident at taking revenge into his own hands. What's happened here? Well, somehow, it still even gets worse. See, he goes back to the elders and officials of Sukkoth, the guys that he hit with the, the whips, and he drags his firstborn son, a guy named Jetha, in front of him. And his son is probably a teenager. He's a young man. Okay, And watch what he does in verse 20. So Gideon said to Jetha, his firstborn, rise and kill them. Like, Grab your sword. I want you to kill 
the kings of Midian here. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Right? Imagine that. Your mind is so laser focused with restoring your reputation that you force your young son, your teenager, to murder someone. Today, if someone did that, it would be so scandalous, it would make the news everywhere, right? But this is where Gideon has fallen to. And when he can't do it, the Midianite kings there, these guys that they've conquered and captured, they have a go at him. You know, hey, Gideon must not be man enough to kill us himself. And so Gideon takes his sword and returns their insult with murder. See, Gideon's victory over the Midianites has gone to his head. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, it's like it's, it's led him into a kind of arrogance that believes actually he's the one that did it. He's the one that made it happen. And now he's the one in charge. And take things into his own hands. And as we watch this scene play out, here's what we, the audience, might wonder. Is there a danger to receiving blessing from God? Now, obviously, God isn't evil, and he never gives us evil. He's thoroughly good, perfectly good, and his gifts are good. But what if, in getting what we're looking for, it all goes to our heads? What if we end up loving the gift more than the giver of the gift? And we forget all about the God who made it happen. Maybe here's another way of putting it. What happens when we're given something good which we didn't earn? Which was just a gift. Well, our sinful human nature is often that we forget that we didn't earn it. We instead remember or start to think that actually we were the ones that made this happen. Like for example... Uh, there's a famous experiment that a group of psychologists did a number of years ago called the Monopoly Experiment. Uh, this is often used sometimes as a sort of a political metaphor, but I'm not using it that way here. Uh, the Monopoly Experiment, basically what they do is they get two people to play the game of Monopoly against each other. They're in for a great time, aren't they? And one of them would start with lots of money. They'd be the rich player. So they'd start with lots of money, and every time they go around the, the board and pass go, they'd get more than just the 200 bucks or whatever. They'd get boatloads of cash. And the other player, we'll call them the poor player, they start with much less money, and every time they pass go, they only get a pittance. And so, obviously, the rich player is going to win, right? <laughs> They've got all the money, and they get even more every time they go around. Now, at first, when they start the game, the rich and the poor player, they kind of know what's going on, and, ah, oh, yeah, we get the, the, the jigs up, uh, and they sort of laugh together. The rich player laughs with the poor player because, of course, you know, why am I going to beat you? Ah, uh, yeah, just they set it up. That's how it is. They've given me this stuff that I didn't earn. But as the game goes on, here's what the psychologists observe. Almost every single time, the laughter would transform into confidence, right? And so this rich player who kept getting richer off money that he didn't earn... Uh, he would start picking up his little Rolls-Royce piece and like slapping it down on the board. 
uh, in like this confidence show of, uh, you know, I'm the one in charge. And then sometimes he'd even pick up the poor player's piece and begin moving it for them when the poor player didn't want to go. And then the really surprising thing, in some of these studies, at the end of the game, the psychologist would ask, well, you know, rich player, uh, what made you win? And if the game went on for quite a, a long period of time, then sometimes the rich player would say, oh, the reason I won is because I'm the better player. You see, this is human nature, actually. We forget the things that we've been given, which we didn't earn, and we start to think, actually, I'm the one that made it happen. We tend to forget how, actually, it's God who gives us life and breath and strength to do absolutely everything that we do. And for those of us in Christ, we often forget that it's not our good works that have earned our place before God, as if, you know, why should God let us into his heaven? Why should God let us into relationship with him? Because I've done a pretty good job. No, it's purely a gift. The gift of his son, his death in our place, sparing us from his judgment. It's the free gift of eternal life, the free gift of relationship with God, but we tend to forget. And that's the situation for Gideon. He goes from fear to victory to arrogance. And now look where it ends up as we come to the end of the story. He comes back home victorious, the kings of the Midianites slain. And then all the people of Israel, verse 22, what do they say? They say, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Do you see what they're offering there? They're offering him a dynasty. You, your son, your grandson, you will be the ones to rule over us. You will be our king. Now, that's a bit of a useless request because they already have a king. Their king is the Lord. And they're not doing very well at obeying him. And so I don't know what good another king's going to do for them. In fact, this is a sinful request as a result. But Gideon, thankfully, replies, verse 23, I will not rule over you. That's the right reply. It's the right response. I won't rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Maybe finally he's got it. <laughs> but here's the problem. Everything Gideon does from this point on to the end of the story is the sort of thing that a king would do anyway. Right? First thing he does after making that declaration, the Lord will rule over you, is he demands the people give him some gold. The sort of thing that a king would do, right? In fact, he, he demands, give me 1,700 shekels worth of gold. That's about 20 kilos, which today would be worth over a million bucks. That's a lot of gold. And then uh, after doing that, he, uh, he marries dozens of wives and he fathers 70 sons. <laughs> the very thing that the pagan kings around uh, the Israelites were doing, right? They, they want to spread themselves as much as they can. It's kind of gross, but that is what the kings would do. Dozens of wives, 70 sons. And in fact, one of his sons, who we're going to meet next week, is named Abimelech. And the name Abimelech, get this, means my dad is the king. <laughs> so make of that what you will. And then, uh, having said all that, what does King Gideon do with all the gold? Well, he melts it all down. And from it, he makes something called an ephod. Now, an ephod is something that the priest would normally wear. right? It's like a priestly garment, someone who intercedes between man and God. And he sets up this ephod, this, this golden fiber robe, 
in the middle of the city, in fact, the city called Ophrah, where God initially called him and promised all these wonderful things to him. In that city, he sets up this golden ephod, and the people see it there, and it says that they began to bow down to it and even hoard themselves after it. The people begin worshipping the ephod of Gideon, the golden ephod of Gideon, as an idol. And Gideon does nothing to stop him. In fact, what he does is he retires into private life, eventually dies, and the Israelites go on worshipping not only the golden ephod, but back to Baal and back to Asherah. And what can we say except that things end up worse than how they began? This is awful. Even for all the good that Gideon's faith and leadership brought, his arrogance led Israel into deeper and deeper sin. It led them further and further from the Lord. In fact, here's just a little literary comment. In chapter 6 and chapter 7, you might have noticed that the Lord is mentioned over and over. He's almost like the protagonist here. He's the one doing everything. Gideon's following along with him. But then in chapter 8, the Lord is barely mentioned at all. It's like the Israelites have pushed him completely out of the picture of their lives at this point. And here's something we need to grapple with. Are we at risk of doing the same as Gideon? Because it's great to talk about assurance, and we have the assurance that God longs to give those who are fearful and doubting and sinful, and he does, and that's very, very true. But here's the danger. We must not let that uh, lead us into arrogant complacency. And this is the temptation for every one of us, because remember, we as sinful humans are likely to forget that we didn't earn the good gifts we've been given. Uh, we tend to forget that God is the one who created us, who gave us life and breath and arms and legs and a brain and time on this earth. That when I woke up this morning, it was God sustaining my life. And that in the depths of my sin, it was God who saved me through the gift of his son. When we did nothing to earn it, we are prone to forget these things because we are sinful humans. And here's where that leads we end up arrogantly idolizing ourselves. Just like with Gideon, it, it leads to self-idolatry. For example, we might look at a Christian brother or sister who's really struggling in an area of sin. It's a real weakness for them. Uh, they've been struggling maybe even for years with this thing. And we might look at them and we might think something like, well, you know, I'm glad that I'm not like them because I dot, 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 dot. And we, we run through the things that we did better than they did. That's arrogance and self-idolatry. I did it. Or we might look at someone whose family is just falling apart, right? It's a real mess. And we look at them and we go, well, gee, you know, if only they'd done what I've done. If only they raised their kids like I raised my kids or whatever. Or we might remember our good works, the things that we've done, even the things we've done today. And we might say, well, this is why I'm right with God. Maybe we even don't think it consciously, but it's there. And hold on, if that's there, we need to remember that our salvation and our victories over sin are only because the Lord is gracious. I can tell you for myself, if not for the Lord, I would be totally swamped in sin. I'm saying this as your pastor, right? I know for a fact 
if not for the Lord forgiving me and saving me through Jesus Christ, and if not for the Holy Spirit working in me to graciously, patiently change me day by day, I'd be where so many people in this world are, totally distant from God, totally swamped by sin. See, it's the same for you. And we forget that. Like Gideon, who fell into arrogance and into self-idolatry. And so, friends, we must remember that we can do nothing without the Lord. All we are and all we have is because of his gracious love for us. And so there's no place for arrogance. And so, we come to the end of Gideon's story. Now we've seen the full story, right? Not just the famous scene. It starts with fear and doubt. And God steps in with assurance. Then God brings a great victory. But the story ends with arrogance and idolatry. And if we think of this like a, a movie, it finishes with one of those frustrating, ambiguous endings, doesn't it? Is, is Gideon a good guy or is he a bad guy? Is he a hero or is he a villain? Well, there's a bit of both, isn't he? Much like us. In fact, just like us, at times he's fearful and doubtful. And just like us, at times, that leads us to sin. And just like us, at times, he's arrogant and prideful and self-idolizing. And here's perhaps what it shows us in the end. Friends, we just really need the gospel. We really need Jesus. Because even though Gideon and Israel were saved from their big enemy, the Midianites, in this amazing, miraculous way, it wasn't enough. They ended up worse than when they began, didn't they? And so, you know, God can save you and me from any threat or problem in this world, can't he? He can save you from financial hardship. He can save you from disease. He can save you from war. He can save you from violence. He can save you even from death itself. But just like with freedom from the Midianites, these things aren't the true enemy. God saves us from those things. We may still end up worse than before, more distant from him than ever before. The true enemy, in fact, is within. It's our idolatrous, self-exalting hearts. This is why God has to give us a better kind of salvation, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He came to save us even when we were fearful, weak, doubtful, sinful and he came to save us even though we are arrogant prideful self-idolizing jesus died on the cross taking all of our sin all the judgment of god that we deserve so that we can truly be saved and the truth of the gospel is that he's also given us the holy spirit to change our hearts day by day as we choose to trust in christ and repent of our sin and so, friends, he's done it for the weak and he's done it for the arrogant. Therefore, trust Jesus. Know the assurance of his gospel and never, ever forget that it's the Lord alone that's made it happen. Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you again as the king of all creation, confessing our fear, doubt, sin, arrogance, pride, idolatry oh lord please help us weak and weary sinners 
Forgive us, save us through your Son, and keep growing us, Lord, that we might honour you. In Jesus' name, amen.